Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. For those of us visiting, for those of you visiting us today, I should say, welcome to you. We've been in Ephesians since October. This is our 22nd lesson in Ephesians, and we find ourselves at the end of Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. And it is today that at the end of the prayer in Ephesians 3, we come to the conclusion of the matter. The grand idea, the main point, Paul's ultimate summary of all that he's been teaching in these opening three chapters in Ephesians. What is the main point, Paul? What is his central purpose? Why labor to teach such high theology and biblical doctrine and truth? The answer is in our text today, as you see in chapter 3, verse 21. To him be the glory. All praise to God, to God alone, is the glory. Eight times in Ephesians, Paul has used this Greek word doxa, which means glory. Eight times, all in the first three chapters. That's important. It shouldn't surprise us then in the slightest that here is Paul concludes his prayer of transition, which is a prayer merging and blending God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's a prayer for the Spirit strengthening, for you to receive the love of Christ and be filled to the fullness of God, overflowing, as it were, in the love of God, that this prayer, in it, he would motivate our faiths with our highest purpose, our highest calling. To him be the glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, asks, What is the chief end of man? Answer, Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And as I repeat that question to you, how critical is the answer to that question for your identity, for your purpose, for your meaning in life? What are you teaching your children? Where do you go to get instructed in this truth? So critical to know man's chief end is the glory of God. It's extremely critical. It is the only worldview of any significance at all. And it is the singular worldview that we all must have. God's glory is the purpose of our life. It's the meaning of everything. And this is what Paul is delivering in this letter to the Ephesians. A God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, Spirit-empowered letter of purpose, worldview, and identity for the saints in Ephesus. And truly for all of us who believe To be truly Christian, we must know what God and Christ has done for us, which Paul elaborates in these three chapters. Electing us, redeeming us, adopting us, raising us from spiritual death to new life in Christ, uniting us together, both Jews and Gentiles. There are no distinctions, brothers and sisters. Uniting us in one new man in Christ, and then he's found God is stacking us together, as it were, into a spiritual temple, a holy temple, a spiritual dwelling place for God, just as he has planned for his glory from eternity past. This is God's plan. And God's plan is filled with his glory. J.I. Packer says, Our high and privileged calling is to do the will of God in the power of God for the glory of God. C.S. Lewis says, The glory of God and the salvation of human souls is the real business of life. I really think that many of us thought something different about the business of life this past week and this past year. The real business of life, according to C.S. Lewis, is the glory of God and the salvation of human souls. Charles Spurgeon says, If I might have but one prayer, it would be this. O God, glorify thyself in thine own church and the salvation of men. And there we get to the point, the church, the salvation of men, Christ. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is an instruction manual for the glory of God, brothers and sisters. Glory found in salvation. Glory found in the church. Glory found in Christ. From eternity past to the past 2,000 years of power seen in the church to right now building Community Bible Church and on into eternity. This is all about the glory of God. You're in Ephesians chapter 3. Before we read Paul's second prayer, let's review the glory of God from chapters 1 to 3. Where is the glory of God found in these chapters? I told you eight times. Let's walk through some of these and and get our minds around this idea of the glory of God. We find God's glory in what I told you was God's view of salvation in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Thematically, in Ephesians chapter 1... 
Paul gives us God's glory, God's view of salvation seen in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Seen in the past, eternity past, the present, and eternity future. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. Paul says, God chose us. Verse 5 says, He predestined us for adoption as sons. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 7, we have redemption through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Verse 13 goes on to say, after listening to the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Glory. God's view of the salvation of men has a chorus, a refrain. It's like a song. Paul's been singing it. To the praise of his glory. And having sung to the praise of his glory, Paul then turns to prayer at the end of chapter 1, verse 17. Look at that. It says, he's praying to God who is the Father of glory. In verse 18, he says, He's praying that we would know the riches of the glory that God has packed into our inheritance in the saints. Brothers and sisters, that's us. That's the glory that's found in the church. The special glory of community shared with God and shared with his people in fellowship with one another in our gathering, which is so critical to us as we know from the last year of our lives. All of this glory God packed into the church and it was predetermined. It was predestined. It was pre-planned. You're sitting here today because God pre-planned to navigate your finite little life right into here to explode in glory and praise to Him. That's purpose. That's meaning. That's a powerful God. God has even prepared good works from beforehand that you would walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. You see that in the text as well. Most certainly those good works are all prepared for God's glory. Such was the case in Paul's life, you can see in chapter 3. We find that God revealed to Paul the mystery of the ages, that the Jews, God's chosen people, and the Gentiles, the unregenerate, are fellow heirs and fellow saints united together in one new man in Christ in chapter 3, verse 6. For this glorious mystery, Paul finds himself suffering, as he writes this letter, in a jail cell in Rome, saying to the Ephesians, and to all of us as it were, Verse 13 of chapter 3, my suffering is for your glory. I'm jailed for your salvation. Praise God. This is a wonderful message. And I'm happy to be right where I am because God is getting glory. And having shared the mystery and shared God's view of salvation in chapter 1 and all of the high theology that we just reviewed in God's glory, Paul turns to a second prayer to end his high theology teaching. John MacArthur says this first prayer in chapter 1 was a prayer of enlightenment. This prayer in chapter 3 is a prayer of enablement. He's going to end his teaching on doctrine, and he's going to begin in chapter 4 his teaching on duty. Doctrine and duty, we're making a transition, there's a movement here. He's told you what to believe, and now he's going to tell you how you must behave. What thought, then, brothers and sisters, will build the bridge between doctrine and duty, between what you must believe and how you must behave? What thought ties together the sovereignty of God in election and salvation and adoption and redemption and man's responsibility to obey and worship? What thought summarizes high theology, election, adoption, redemption, at the same time runs toward the responsibility of man and God's expectation of our behavior? What one thought? You all want to say it together? The glory of God. The glory of God. It's one of my favorite things when I'm counseling folks, and I can warn you if you come in for counseling. I don't warn you. I want to encourage you to come in for counseling. If you do come in for counseling, I'll ask you this question. If you're confused in life and you're not really sure why things are working out, I ask, you, I ask people this question. I love to ask this question. It's a great thing to ask. Ask it of your friends. What's the purpose of your life? If the response doesn't come back, I live to the glory of God, you know immediately why things are off the rails. Let's read from the prayer in chapter 3 now together. And as we read, I want you to see that this prayer is a prayer of transition. It's a prayer of mobilization and motivation, and it's powered by this singular thought, the glory of God. 
We'll read the whole prayer. We'll circle back around and focus on the doxology found in verses 20 and 21. That's where we're at in our text today. Paul prays this in verse 14. Read it with me. He prays, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you then, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul asks God in this prayer to grant, according to the riches of his glory, that we would arrive at the fullness of the love of Christ and the fullness of God. And here in these last two verses in this doxology, He delivers the fullness of God in two singular thoughts. He is able to him glory. He is able to him glory. That's where we're going. James Montgomery Boyce says, This doxology of Paul's is perhaps the greatest in the Bible. He likens, Boyce does, all of Paul's prayers to a staircase. Arriving at the heights of heaven. Heaven's highest heights are consumed then with God's glory in all things forever and ever. Amen. John MacArthur pictures Paul's transitional prayer as the moment that we are given the keys to the spiritual car of our faith. And told, now, get in and drive to the glory of God. You've been told all about the V8 engine of the salvation that exists for you. You've been told about the four-speed transmission that will sanctify you. You've been told about the tires and the leather interior where the Spirit makes His dwelling. All of this is the faith of your car, the car of your faith, the spiritual car of your faith. Now, to God's glory, get in, sit down, turn the key, listen to the engine of your faith roar. Drop your spiritual 1967 Camaro and drive and hit the gas, brothers and sisters. (laughs) Why would we get in, sit down, turn the key and hit the gas of our spiritual Camaro of our faith? Because we know that our lives are all about the glory of God. His glory is our greatest motivation. If we were to turn the table and say, our lives are about the glorification of this person. Or the glorification of this person. Or the glorification of me. How bankrupt would life be? It's not about you. The whole of your life must be consumed with this truth. The glory of God. And it must motivate you. Paul is driving to that in the text. In fact, we see Paul concludes his prayer with two summary motivations which settle us in God's sovereignty and our glory-giving responsibility. I'm going to say that again for you. That's where we're going this morning. Paul concludes his prayer with two summary motivations which settle us in God's sovereignty and our glory-giving responsibility. He gives us two grand reflections that convince us that God's in charge and our Need is to believe and to obey and worship. What two summary motivations settle us in God's sovereignty and our glory-giving responsibility? Summary motivation number one, God's exceedingly abundant ability. God's exceedingly abundant ability. Number two, the second motivation, God's exciting goal for glory. God's exceedingly abundant ability and God's exciting goal for glory. Let's turn then to point number one in your notes as we consider these two summary motivations that Paul gives us at the end of his prayer in chapter 3 of Ephesians, closing out his doctrinal teaching. I love that he closes out his doctrinal teaching in prayer. That is a perfect example that we need to follow and model. When you understand the truth that the Bible is communicating to you, you turn to prayer. You turn to prayer. 
And it was encouraged to you a second ago by Mark that you should take the, the uh, card, the visitor card in the back of the pew in front of you, the seat in front of you, and write a prayer request on it. Can I just tell you to do that? You don't need to do it right now, but before you leave, it's so encouraging to the folks that are praying for you to pray big. You have needs. Don't kid yourself and don't kid me. Write your request on the card. And as you'll see in the text today, be bold like Paul. Pray big. Motivation number one, God's exceedingly abundant ability. You have seen God's exceedingly abundant ability at least over the course of the last four weeks just like me. And I'm thrilled in God's ability. He has changed the seasons, brothers and sisters. We're in spring. Those dormant trees are coming to life. The frogs are croaking in the ponds in the backyard. Birds are chirping as they sit on the branches. The sound of God's creation sing of his ability. This is God's general ability, seen in all of his creation, to make them produce glory to his name. Better still is God's special ability to save. Consider the life of Frances Jane Crosby. She was born on March 24th of 1820, about 200 years ago. You might know her by the name Fanny Crosby. She lost her sight at six weeks of age from inflammation of her eyes. And though blind, God would use her to write over 8,000 hymns of praise to his glory. You might be familiar with the lyrics of one of those songs, which starts out, To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. Around age eight, she stated this, It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life, and I thank him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might, have, I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beauty and interesting things that are all about me. What's amazing about that quote from an eight-year-old is that she knew that beauty was all around her. She really had never seen it in her life. And she was more content to dwell on the majesty and the perfection and the glory of God in the creation of her being. Even from that ripe old age of eight, she speaks highly of God and his ability to use her for his glory. And that's what we read in Paul's prayer of motivation. God is able. God is able. How able? Read the text again with me from verse 20. Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. He just stacks on top of himself all these descriptors of the extent of God's power. Paul says, now to him, now to the Father, let's direct our thoughts. Let's unite on this point. Join me, he says, won't you? In considering this thought, consider this with me. As a reminder, before we close out the doctrinal section and move into the duties that I'm going to command of you, join me in this thought. God is able. Fanny Crosby is not the first one to believe that God is able. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 14. Surely, scoffers and mockers exist all over our world today who believe that God is unable. That is the course of humanity. That started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And the Bible is not shy about recording from Adam and Eve, all throughout human history, scoffers and mockers from past generations. Genesis 18 talks about Abraham being visited by the pre-incarnate Christ and two other men. And the Lord told Abraham, in one year, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Abraham and Sarah are nearly 100 years old when this is said to them. Sarah overhears the Lord and she laughed. She laughed. She laughed it off. What happened a year later to Sarah? She gave birth to a son named Isaac. Isaac means he laughs. Not only is God able to accomplish his plan through human weakness, even in Isaac's name we see that God has a sense of humor in doing it, laughing, as it were, in this name, Isaac. You're in 1 Samuel 14. 1 Samuel 14. Where someone here in the text believes that God is able. Who believes that God is able in 1 Samuel 14? Jonathan, the son of the first king of Israel, Saul. You see, Jonathan and his dad were in the battlefield north of Jerusalem at a city called Michmash. And I chose the story because I love to say Michmash. I got to stand there and pick up a turtle that was walking on the dry, arid, Israeli ground. Jonathan and his dad, there they are in Michmash, where three companies of Philistines are staring them down and all of the Israelites just from across the valley. 
And so Jonathan and his armor bearer conceived this scheme to drop down into this crag and rise back up the other side. Difficult climbing. Verse 16 of chapter 14. Read it with me. Then Jonathan said, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised Philistines. Perhaps, he says, perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord, he says, is not restrained to save by many or to save by few. He believed that with two men he could tackle this army. So he takes off verse 7. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be a sign to us. What was the result of Jonathan trusting that God is able? You realize that this story says that the swords that were available for the Israelites in this battle were few? Here he's he's going. He's going to tackle three garrisons on his own. Because he believed that God will save by many or by few. Verse 12. So then... The men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will tell you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell, those uncircumcised Philistines. They fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer puts them to death after him as well. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half a furrow in an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it became a great trembling. Who made the earth tremble? Jonathan had faith in God's ability. Look at the verse 23. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth Haven. The Lord is able. He's able. Matthew 19. Turn there now. Matthew 19. I share one story. I shared two. I shared Genesis 18 with you as well. These two stories from the Old Testament. And I hope you understand that story after story after story in the Old Testament prove this truth over and over again. God is able. He's able. Everybody thinks that David and Goliath, slay your, slay your Goliath in your life. That's not a story about David. That's a story about God. God is able. Job says in Job 42.2, after being rebuked by God, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God declares through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32.27, God speaking here, he says, Behold, I am the Lord and the God of all flesh is anything too difficult for me. From Noah to Abraham, Moses and David, all of the rest, they all saw God is able. Especially as we come to the New Testament, even Jesus himself declares that God is able. And not just physically able, brothers and sisters, not just physically able to pick a fight for you and win a battle and overcome a disease and overcome ailments and overcome the loss of family members. Not just physically able, brothers and sisters, God is spiritually able. He is spiritually able to save and to give salvation. You're in Matthew 19, where Jesus has an encounter with a rich, young, self-righteous ruler. The young man wants to know how to have eternal life. And so in verse 21 of chapter 19, Jesus says to this young man, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus' disciples are terribly confused. You see, when they were told, come follow me, their hearts responded. They saw the offer and they moved in that direction. And so they asked Jesus, then who can be saved? To which Jesus responds in verse 26, with people, salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
How is God able to save? How is God able to give eternal life? How is he able to do this? Here's how. From eternity past, God planned, orchestrated, and designed a very, very special life for his son. They purposed, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that the Son would be sent, that the Lord Jesus Christ would take upon himself the sins of the world, that is, the sins of all those who would believe throughout all of the world, through all of time. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, the Son, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in heaven, receiving all the glory that was due his name from all of eternity past, completely content in and of himself, he left the glories of heaven, laying aside his heavenly robe of glory, as it were, to come to earth and take up the robe of flesh, the mantle of flesh like you and I wear. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life just as he and the Father had planned. Never did he sin, only completing and fulfilling all of the Old Testament law, And he died a wicked sinner's death on a cross, satisfying the wrath of God for his sins. He yielded up his life in atonement for sin. And he opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he hath done. How great a thing has he done? Did you think of this salvation for yourself? Do you recognize the sinfulness of your flesh? How sinful are you? Is there good bound up inside of you? How will you fix your evil? How will you fix your sin? You need something that's beyond you. You need something big. You need something far more abundantly beyond anything that you could ask or think to save you. And that is exactly what was conceived in the mind of God. God is able to save because he provided a way through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the plan from all of eternity past to save through the son and nothing could stop the love of God through his son to perfect and perform his plan. And you can read the plan of God and the love of Christ, which he shares so freely with all of us, we can read it in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. The details of this plan are incredible, and the Lord was meticulous at making them come to pass. Jesus, comforting his disciples, wants them to know, and so he tells them in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. And he will be handed over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge because they're the ones who can crucify him. And on the third day, having been buried on the third day, he will be raised up. So meticulous are these details. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20. God's plan perfectly executed. Jesus Christ resurrected from that grave three days after being placed inside. Acts chapter 1 records that Jesus then ascended to heaven, even to the right hand of the Father. And 40 days later, the Holy Spirit was sent at Pentecost to permanently indwell believers. You see, no longer would the Spirit only regenerate the hearts of men as in the Old Testament, coming to them and filling them. Now he would regenerate and live continually in the elect, in the redeemed. This is the power of the glory of God. That his Holy Spirit would live in and work within us. Paul's summary motivation includes this very thought when he prays in chapter 3, verse 20. He prays, turn your attention to him who is able, according to the power that works within us. Paul says, be reminded, be reminded of how powerfully God is able. Not only is God able infinitely, exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all you could ask or think, God is able proportionally, according to and in parallel with the demonstration of power that you've already received. The Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, is living and working inside of you. 
that's power. That he would choose to dwell in you. That is not something that you call on and ask him to do. Does that make sense? You don't call on and ask him to do it. It's something that he, he does in his grace. And he does in power. And he does in the person of the Holy Spirit. He comes and he delivers in the Holy Spirit. And I, I think how often do we reflect on these truths? How often do we resolve to hold in our mind the power of the election of God? The power of the redemption of God? The power of the salvation of God? How little do we think about the ability of God? That's why Paul wanted to remind you. That's why these three chapters of doctrine. What requests do we make of God? Do we really honor Him and His ability? We ask for health. We ask for a good night's sleep. We ask for our anger to go down and our income to go up. We have all these requests as we plod through this life together. But are we really making requests that honor the ability and power of God? Do we make those kind of requests? What big requests do we have? Would you write on the back of the card in the seat in front of you the big requests that you have? The big salvation requests? The big requests to fix the sin in your life? Those things that you don't want to talk about, write it down and ask for prayer and believe that it is God who is able and He, through prayer and His Word and your instruction, can fix those very sins that you so desperately cling to. Whose salvation are you praying for that seems impossible? Who are you praying for that lives as a Christian in name only? They're all over the place, brothers and sisters. In name only. Do you pray that God who is able would crush their pride in their sin and cause them to worship and obey him in spirit and truth to the praise of his glory. And that's just the point. God is able, exceedingly abundantly able. As long as you understand he's moving and he will do these things for his glory. And that takes us to point number two in your notes, the second summary motivation. We need to turn to summary motivation number two, God's exciting goal for his glory. He will do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think. He's got a track record of doing this. Why? Because he's got an exciting goal for his glory. Superman was the comic book superhero created in the minds of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster in 1933 while both attended Glenville High School in Ohio. Superman would arguably be the most famous superhero the world has ever known. And you'd expect that Jerry and Joe would be billionaires then, basking in the glory of their creation's popularity, brilliance, and success. But that's just not the case, brothers and sisters. Jerry and Joe sold their rights to the publishing of their comic book superhero for 130 bucks. Years later, they would engage in significant legal battles, and they would be awarded... $30,000 a year for the rest of their lives because of their hard-fought legal battles. And I think about the $30,000 a year and how insignificant that small fraction is when you compare it to the $277 million of profit currently made by the Superman brand in annual global licensing fees. Jerry and Joe missed out on all the glory of their creation. In sharp contrast, God is intent on capturing all of the glory in his creation for himself. He has a goal for his glory, and Paul knows it so well. Where do we see the goal for God's glory? In verse 21, where Paul says, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. A second time, Paul says, To him. Give to him. Deliver to the Father your attention and your affection. Moreover, join with me, he says, in getting glory to our God. This is the summary motivation of all of the content of the first three chapters of Ephesians. God's glory is a massive concept. And I want clarity for you on God's exciting goal for his glory. Does it sound selfish? Yes. Is it? Absolutely. And I want to talk about why it's right and why it's good. So why glory? 
What is glory? Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. I hope a few of you smiled when I said Isaiah 6 because you know where we're going. Glory must be thought of in the sense of possession. That is, having glory. Being the owner of glory. And glory must be thought about in the sense of reception, which is the getting of glory. You could also think about glory in the sense of delivering. But I really want to look at the owner of glory and his perception of where glory, what glory is and where it comes from. Glory to God is possession and reception. Glory is the possession of brilliance, magnificence, vast beauty, and majestic creativity. And glory is renown, honor, adoration, and praise received by the creator and owner of splendid and magnificent creations. Glory is both possession, then, and reception. Isaiah helps us get an understanding of glory when he takes us up into a heavenly scene in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. You see it in the text. In heaven, where Isaiah is taken up in the spirit, he saw the seraphim calling out to one another, saying in God's presence, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This, brothers and sisters, is a picture of possession. God made the earth, and his glory in it is unmistakable. You saw it on your drive-in today. It also, then, in verse 3 of chapter 6, is a picture of reception. God is receiving due praise and honor for his creation from the seraphim who call out, Triple holy. Holy, holy, holy. Turn to Isaiah chapter 42, and we'll look at verse 8. Isaiah 42. As the rightful owner and distributor of all glory, brilliance, splendor, and creativity, God will not allow praise, worship, honor, or adoration for the vast beauty seen in his creation to be given to anyone other than himself. God is selfish, and I love it. I love to say that. I really want you to think about that. I want you to love the fact that God is selfish too. Because he's nothing like us. He's nothing like us. He needs to be selfish. It's all his. Your life is his. Your very breath is sustained by him right now. Are you causing the blood in your body to pump? You're the one that's beating your heart? Don't kid yourself. Your lungs are respirating oxygen because of you? Did you start that? Were you there knitting yourself together in your mother's womb? Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that all humanity is without excuse. The expectation since creation is that the creature, us, will honor the creator. But humanity rebelled against God and sought glory for ourselves. That we would even choose to strip glory from God and give glory to ourselves. You think about the image of God, think about this. We want glory, don't we? You want it. You want glory for yourself. That's how much God made us after his image and likeness. But you were meant to restrain your desire for glory because you're dependent on him. And being dependent, you need to give him the glory. Paul says in Romans 1.25, he talks about the wrath of God because of our rebellion. The wrath of God has come upon creation because of our rebellion. He says in verse 25, For they, humanity, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God expects praise and will most certainly punish glory thieves. You're in Isaiah 42.8. God basically says this very same thing through the prophet Isaiah. That he will punish glory thieves. That he expects all praise and glory to himself. This is his very thought in verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 42. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Nor my praise to graven images. God is jealously protecting all the glory due his name for the awesomeness of his creative ability. 
The goal of God is his eternally increasing glory. It will not be stolen. It will not be diverted. It will not be taken away. God getting all of his glory is right. It is good. It is just. Praise God that he wants more glory. He deserves it. I want him to be a glory hog. You can say that too. He gets it all. And I ask you, do you think this way? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you must. And if you're not, I hope this question sits on you heavy. That you really think about where the glory should go. Because I know if you don't believe this truth, and you're not a Christian here today, that you are one pursuing glory for yourself. And I would challenge you on that. We're talking about the glory of God. And I would ask that you unite your thoughts with ours. And trust Christ. And repent of your sinfulness and your own pursuit of your own glory. This is the whole course of life. So you might ask me, so where is the excitement for us then, Oliver? If it's all about God, where is the excitement for us? Be careful how you ask that question. Especially if there's pride or anger or jealousy in it when you ask it. The excitement for us is so clearly seen, brothers and sisters, in this. That he chose to share his glory with us at all. That's the excitement for us. That he chose to share his glory with us at all. He made a way. He made a way. He made a way. Moreover, in making a way, that expensive way behind me, more than that expensive way behind me, God made us to be deliverers of his greater glory. And you say, wait a second. God's going to grow in glory? What are you talking about? Not greater in quality, greater in quantity. That's the purpose for which he made us. To get more and more glory for himself. God's greatest glory is this. Based on the merits of the substitutionary death of his son. God is taking the spiritually dead, you and I. Raising us to life in his spirit's power. Causing us to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments. And gathering us together into a holy temple. A spiritual dwelling place for God on earth. Where he will be king. Open up you gates. Open up you ancient doors. And let the king of glory come in. You're in Ephesians chapter 2. Please see the plan clearly before us. I meant to tell you to turn to Ephesians 2. I just did now. Ephesians 2 has the plan clearly laid out before us. Walk through the text with me, will you? Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.4. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of his great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 10 of chapter 2. For we are his master craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God personally prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. You see the salvation individually, personally, God is rescuing, redeeming, and adopting. His glory is most certainly seen in our individual, personal salvation. But his glory is not found in our isolation at all. Not in our isolation, but rather in our community. That's what he made us for. We are made for community. Chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. For through Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Verse 22. In Christ, you also are being built up together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, what is the name of God's household? What is the name of the dwelling place of God in the Spirit into which we are being built? The church. Even Community Bible Church. The church. God's household on earth is called the church. God's glory is found in the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. For 2,000 years, Christ has successfully been building his church to the glory of God, which was the plan from eternity past to arrive at the fullness of God. That's an incredible thought, the fullness of God. He wants to build a church. And as we've seen in the last year and a half, that's exactly what he's done here. Boy, being a part of a church is not an option. 
friends. Being a part of God's church, his plan is not an option. It's not optional on your life. The glory of God is here. Is the glory of God seen in your life in the way of you being part of a church? I would hope so. Because in being part of a church, you're being part of what God asks of you. To be found in submission. To be found making commitment. To be found loving and serving and giving to one another. Even as we saw last week where we made members of our church. Because the marvel of the age is this. The greatest mystery of the angelic host watching the time-driven events on earth is this. How could God get a bunch of wicked sinners like us to gather together for him, repent of our sins, receive his forgiveness, honor his word, glorify his son, and sing praises to his name? How? Because he is able. He is able to get all of his glory from all of his creation just as he planned. He didn't sell it out for 130 bucks. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 21... To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Consider with me how narrow and restrictive is the path to God's glory. Paul says God's glory comes from the church and from Christ and through all generations forever and ever. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Are you part of the church where God's glory is found? Do you stand in this generation as one truly being built together into the dwelling place of God and the Spirit with the other saints in your local community? Are you part of a church? Do you really believe that God saved you for isolation to live off in the woods of northeastern Washington? He did not. He saved you for community. Clint Arnold reminds us, the church is so valued by the Father that he offered the blood of his Son to create it. Do you take the redemption of Christ lightly? His redemption purchased the people to build his church. Do you think of the church as a place where God's glory dwells with you in it? Do you treasure the church as the love gift of the Father to the Son? The Son loves the church. You must as well. Consider how in verse 25 where he says, Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Generation after generation of men and women filled with the Holy Spirit find their place in the church, loving and serving in the church, taking a stand with the church in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation of people and nations and nations who seek her destruction, who seek to shut her down. Did you ever think that you would say in your lifetime, the underground church in Canada? The church in Scotland faced destruction in the 16th century because of the tyranny of Mary of Guise. The Roman Catholic head of the Scottish church and state was she. And she was arresting and jailing and even executing reformed pastors for heresy and sedition. Scotland was filled with ecclesiastical horror and hostility. The church needed its own superman. And God sent one named John Knox. 462 years ago today, on May 2nd of 1559, the Scottish reformer returned to his homeland after 10 years in captivity and exile. How did he mobilize and motivate believers? On what did John Knox focus in such a trial, he preached the power and glory of God in his own town of St. Andrews in June of 1559. His advisors warned him, hey, Mary's troops and the Catholic bishops are ready to salute you with a dozen muskets. His response, I cannot fear the, their boast or their tyranny that I will cease from doing my duty. When of his mercy, God offereth me the occasion to preach. I desire the hand or weapon of no man to defend me. My life is in the custody of him whose glory I seek. 11 June 1559, he preached Jesus cleansing the temple to a large congregation, and the implication was so clear. The Scottish church must overthrow all of the vestiges of the papal religion. Roman Catholicism had to go. So powerful were his sermons on this in three subsequent days that the largest number, that a large number of local citizens renounced Catholicism, as did 21 of the Roman Catholic priests. What made Knox preaching so powerful? He preached the glory of God. He preached the sovereignty of God. 
He says, unless the very cause of our faith be known, our joy and comfort cannot be full. There is no way more proper to build and establish faith than when we hear and undoubtedly do believe that our election, which the Spirit of God doth seal in our hearts, consists not in ourselves, but in the eternal, immutable, good pleasure of God. Sinclair Ferguson tells us, This foundational doctrine taught by John Knox would thunder from Scottish pulpits and transform the mindset of an entire nation. Wow. What doctrine, what preaching transforms the mind? What biblical worldview settles your heart in God's sovereignty and responsibility? What thoughts motivate and mobilize true Christians? God is able. To him be the glory. God's exceedingly abundant ability... God's exciting goal for his glory. These are Paul's two summary motivations that conclude three chapters of the highest theology in prayer and in the highest praise of God. Knowing these settles us in God's sovereignty and our ability to give him the glory due his name. How do we respond? How do we respond to these truths? Let me give you three questions. Do you know that he is able? Do you know that he is able How well do you understand the power and sovereignty of God? Do you understand it like Jonathan? Do you know that God can deliver and rescue and save by many or by few? Do you know that he's in charge and nothing is out of place, either in the physical world or in the spiritual world? Have you stopped striving and settled your mind in his sovereignty and your need to worship him continually as your responsibility? Second question, do you stand for his glory? Is your heart set on God's glory like Fanny Crosby? Do you know that God has expectations of your behavior planned in the eternity past? And do you deliver those to him? Third question. Will you give him glory this week? Will you prove that he lives in your heart? He doesn't need you to be a superhero like John Knox. Just be faithful to do the basics. Read your Bible and trust it. Pray for other people. Ask for prayer. Go to the Bible studies. Share your faith with others. Share your needs on the back of the prayer card in front of you. Do the basics and grow in your faith. You'll see that you'll grow if you stay faithful. This, the basics, the simplicity, prayer, fellowship, read his word, trust it. This is his glory. Trust him. For his glory, I implore you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. This is a day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. For in this day, Father, you have been glorified. You will be glorified. You made this day from eternity past, and here we are. Here we are. You've sovereignly navigated and directed us to this moment for your glory. And for this, we're so grateful. We pray these things to your glory, to your praise. Amen.